What's behind the surge in healthcare sector data breaches? I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Poneman, Chairman and Founder of the research firm, the Poneman Institute, and Rick Cam, President and Co-Founder of ID Experts, a provider of breach response services. Larry and Rick will be describing the findings of their latest annual benchmark study assessing privacy and security breaches in the healthcare sector. So now, this is the sixth annual Poneman study that's been conducted to evaluate breach trends in the healthcare sector. What was the most surprising finding this year? So, Marianne, this is Rick. Probably the most surprising and potentially interesting finding from this study is that there's still a very high level and number and frequency of data breaches in the healthcare sector. This particular study has been going on for six years, so this is the sixth annual version of it, and the number continues to stay in the high 80s and and low 90s in terms of organizations that have experienced a a data breach in the last two years. What about you, Larry? Yeah, I I really think that uh, one of the most important findings is simply the fact that things are not changing very quickly in healthcare, you know, despite all of the coverage, media coverage of you know, major data breaches in the healthcare industry, as well as now recent random ransomware attacks. Despite all of that, a lot of organizations are very slow in their security and privacy practices, slow in terms of creating you know, improvement and making the appropriate investments. So in terms of some of the trends that you're seeing, what are the biggest changes in terms of the types of health data breaches that we're seeing and potential causes? Well, one of the things that we've noted in the study is that the source or the root cause of the data breach, when we first started to do this research six years ago, it was the negligent or careless employee. And it was like A number one, that was the most significant threat. Now it's the criminal, which is often an external attacker, but can also be a malicious insider as well. And so kind of that's a very big shift uh, because when the root cause is a criminal attack, it's much more difficult to identify and contain the the breach. So that definitely is a big change, and the trend has been moving in that direction for six years. Yeah, I would add to that, Larry. Ransomware in particular seems to be one of the attack vectors that is on the rise. I think for those of us that have been to the various events around data security earlier part of this year, uh, ransomware seems to be the issue du jour with uh, many organizations experiencing a ransomware attack. And as you know, Mary, ransomware can be huge cost to organizations because it's, it basically stops the organization in its track because it no longer can use its core IT infrastructure. Um, and to the other part of the, the issue is, of course, if you don't pay the ransom, you may never see the data. It's very painful and, you know, very conspicuous because organizations that are attacked by ransomware, everyone knows who they are. You can't hide, you know, to treat it as a secret. Ransomware has been around for a number of years. Why do you think we're seeing such a resurgence, especially in the healthcare sector, What's some of the common threads that we're seeing in terms of the healthcare organizations that fall victim to these attacks? Uh, we've had a couple of events where the FBI has helped port what's happening with ransomware. And what they've shared with us is that the fastest path to money for these uh, bad actors essentially is now ransomware. Uh, it turns out that stealing the data, selling it in the dark web, committing identity theft or finding identity thieves to 
translate that data into into cash is a long process. What the FBI basically shared was that by essentially breaking into a system, encrypting the data, making it uh, unavailable to an organization like a healthcare organization that really needs that data, their, their systems to run their business, that they're willing to pay. So it's the fastest path to money. What are some of the key differences that we're seeing between organizations that end up paying the ransom and those that don't? For instance, are there any key lessons that healthcare entities can learn from those organizations that manage to prevent either falling victim to these attacks in the first place, or if they are attacked, manage to recover without paying the extortionists? Any lessons that are emerging? The key defense against a ransomware attack basically is to have good backups and multiple backups, one on-site and in, in many cases off-site and disconnected from the network. And the reason for that is because new new versions of ransomware and the bad actors that are using them are finding that if they don't destroy the backup, that their ability to get paid ransom is considerably less probable. So the new versions and the new attack vectors are basically going after the backup systems and the backup data to destroy it too as part of the as part of the attack. Another factor too that's important to see your question, Marianne, more and more organizations, healthcare organizations are actually cooperating with government and, and sharing information with other healthcare organizations. And so, for example, if there's an approach to mitigate or you know, lessen the risk of ransomware or other destructive malware technologies, there might be a conversation that could be helpful to lots of organizations. You know, a little, a little pain for one company might actually result in no pain for a lot of organizations in the healthcare space. So this information sharing is definitely very important and if you're going to basically figure out ways of diminishing, if you will, the, the cost and the pain associated with the ransomware attack. When it comes to the risk of ID theft and fraud resulting from data breaches, how serious is the risk? For instance, many large class action lawsuits that get filed in the wake of data breaches often end up getting dismissed because plaintiffs haven't shown proof that they've actually been harmed by ID theft or fraud as a result. What do you think is the case here? Is the threat being overblown or are a lot of these incidents actually being perhaps thwarted through ID monitoring to sort of mitigate the risk? That's a great question. I think the issue, I think, is the landscape of breaches that have occurred over the last decade or so have been mostly attacks to steal financial data. So your credit cards, you get access to your checking account and so forth. And for the most part, I think the risk of having identity theft and fraud occur from that is pretty low at this point. A lot of the class actions, as you mentioned, that have started up are looking for actual damages. And in the case of financial identity theft, I think consumers are aware of that issue and are are pretty well protected with some of the tools that are available, like monitoring tools and other things. In the case of healthcare, though, I think we have a different situation. The data that's being breached, protective health information, includes not only financial information, but includes uh, your health records. It includes your health insurance numbers. It includes things about procedures and or uh, illnesses that you may have, some of which may be uh, embarrassing or you don't want to disclose because of the potential impact on your job or your work or your family and so forth. So I think what's the issue with protected health information being breached is much more serious. And there's, there's not the number of tools and understanding of the problem. Consumers don't understand it, and there's not as many monitoring tools to actually detect medical identity theft. For a number of years, we've monitored medical identity theft problem. 
trying to figure out how large it is, you know, how many people are victims, and we use different statistical methods to do that. Still a relatively small percentage of the total population, but it has more than doubled over the last four or five years. And in general, it's basically a very costly crime. As Rick mentioned, if you're a victim of a medical identity theft crime, it's likely you'll never know about it. There's not a, like an equivalent credit reporting system that you can go to to say, gee, someone's using my social security number to take out a credit card. It doesn't exist in the medical identity theft world. There may be two new tools on the horizon that will reduce that risk, but for the most part, it's very, very hard, number one, to find out whether or not you're a victim. And even if you're a victim, to be able to go to, the, say, your healthcare provider and say, I need to change my medical record. You know, it's because they don't know whether you are the true person or the imposter. So it's a problem that's definitely on the rise. And, and the good news, there's a little bit of hope <laughs> on the horizon. You know, most of the findings of our study are pretty negative to the industry, but one of the things that has improved, more and more healthcare providers at least are aware of the medical identity theft problem but they don't necessarily have a, a role or position in helping to mitigate or curtail the crime. The uh, potential impact on your health and safety, so that if your prescription is misdiagnosed or if the information causes embarrassment, I would, fortunately there's not been case law that will pick up on those issues being damages, right? Not yet, at least. But I think that's happened at some point soon. Yeah, I think the class action litigations on privacy and data protection issues, not just in healthcare, but broadly, you know, the common problem is you can basically establish a class, but you can't necessarily determine that there's meaningful, long-lasting harm. But there are more and more cases that are moving in that direction. Sooner or later, there will be a, a case that is a big, like a, a case that sets precedence and that will unfortunately unleash a floodgate of class action lawsuits. Do you get a sense of what kinds of data breaches are potentially most damaging to individuals? For instance, is it the patient data that's used for crimes like tax fraud that is often stolen by insiders at a hospital versus the sort of data that we see exfiltrated by unknown hackers? Yeah, we've looked at the, the issue of the root cause of the data breach and the actors, who is committing the crime. So it could be a malicious insider, you know, someone who's selling a record for $5 a piece and to, it's a second source of income for them. They don't actually understand the damage and the harm that it causes. But it could also be folks on the outside, external attackers that try to get into the systems and exfiltrate large amounts of data. So it's a combination. It's, it's not just one actor. It could be many different types of crime and criminal activities that are all aiming to, you know, the, the goal is to steal the high-value information and basically monetize it and ultimately end up with a Bitcoin transaction. And Larry, I think, the, you know, the other dimension of this problem, you know, which, ones are, which data breaches are more serious, and if, if you think about the fact that the criminal elements now have access to big data, big databases, data analytic, data mining tools. Unfortunately, the combination of data that creates a, a higher level of risk for consumers. So even though you know, a breach may include uh, only email addresses and passwords versus uh, health information, if you're able to combine all those data elements, you now have a much clearer picture of how to compromise that individual's identity. 
you know, you're, you're bringing up a good point, Rick, because some of the research that we've done, you know, some of the data analytics, big data analytics that we do for marketing, for example, you know, to understand who is your customer, it's being used by cyber criminals to figure out who are the people who are worthy of an attack, who, you know, basically based on their position or the things that they know, you know, those are the people who are an attack based on uh, this new information, this new intelligence. Marianne, you talked about IRS tax issues that occur at the beginning of each year. We've seen a rash of these particular specific situations occur this year where now that the IRS has changed some of their rules, the criminals are actually identifying who the financial people are in a, in a business and asking that they send W-2 information to them. So they're basically architecting a very sophisticated or actually simple attack where they compromise an individual saying, hey, I'm the CEO of a company, I'm your CEO, for example, and, and I want you to send me all your W-2 information. And the financial people are very willing to do that in some cases, and unfortunately that creates some of the problems that we're seeing. So now, as we know, HIPAA breaches involving protected health information get reported to the Department of Health and Human Services, but what about other data breaches that occur in the healthcare and life sciences sectors that in- involve the theft of intellectual property and company trade get- sure. secrets? Any sense of how rampant those breaches are in the healthcare, healthcare IT, pharmaceutical and life sciences sectors? We're doing research right now on the theft of high-value intellectual properties, but uh, information that's not necessarily hundreds of thousands of records. It may be one memo, for example, or one spreadsheet that has calculations. And there's quite a lot of activity out there in the life sciences, pharmaceutical, and healthcare space to suggest that this is a growing problem. Now, looking ahead, what other security and privacy trends in the healthcare sector that you think we might see emerging that might not yet be reflected by your study? So one of the things that actually started to be picked up in the study, this particular study and I believe last year's study, was this issue of mobile and mobile apps in the healthcare sector. Literally tens of thousands of these uh, apps are being built. And then unfortunately in many cases with without uh, a security protocol or consideration necessarily. So I think we're going to see a growing attack vector on these mobile apps as well as the uh, Internet of Things with these devices, whether they're you know specialized uh, monitors that sit on your wrist, or sensors that sit in your clothes to sense you know sensor your your temperature and so forth. I think the problem will only get larger in the next year or two. So I concur completely with you, Rick. I think it's all around the Internet of Things, these devices that we wear, like a Fitbit to a smartphone, a smartwatch, to you know medical devices, even in a hospital, for example, like MRI systems. These are all connected to a network, and the worst case scenario, all of these devices collect information and do a lot of good. They could actually, they could you know, the the bad guys can do things to turn it off or to create havoc. So I think we're going to see those kinds of problems in the future. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Rick. I've been speaking to Larry Poneman and Rick Cam. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.